Hey guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Podcast. So today's episode literally blew my mind on how we can come through adversity and how we can look at our identity, review things, and introducing and understanding why we do things and daily actions and learning mindset rather than a restrictive or not conducive mindset so today's episode is with the amazing mark pollock so mark has an amazing story from going blind in 1998 after being quite a very very successful athlete uh, as a rower and then going into trying to rebuild his mind rebuild his body from that and then becoming paralyzed in 2010 so mark has done amazing work and is doing amazing work so if anyone wants to go over and listen to mark's ted talk please do just type in ted talk and mark pollock and you'll get it so he's run through the Gobi desert he's pulling a sled for 43 days in antarctica so what we some of the things that we actually talk about is rebuilding your identity we what's the biggest lesson he's learned the importance of how he actually goes around picking around the people who he has around him and partners and training partners around that side of stuff we talk about some of the philosophical things like stoicism and nietzsche and some of the favorite books that we've learned we talk about going into flow state we talk about how he picks his tasks how he breaks things down into daily tasks into daily actions into weekly things we talk about when how to actually set a goal for yourself about that four percent and we talk about the amazing campaign and the amazing work uh, that mark is doing right now in order to find a cure for paralysis so if anyone wants to get mark into a corporate talk head over to markpollock.com and if anyone wants to join mark in november for his run in the dark campaign and it could be a 5k or a 10k you can sign up through the link in the bio as well so this is a powerful, powerful episode on the mindset side of stuff. So I really, really hope you enjoy that. There was one bit in this. I literally had goosebumps, genuinely had goosebumps and one bit, that one sentence that he says in this episode. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode with Mark, Mark Pollock. Mark, how are we? Very good, thank you. Thanks for having me on. No worries at all. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Mark, for anyone that isn't aware of your story and your background and... I think it's it's quite a it's quite an incredible story, and I think I I don't think like even half an hour an hour is going to do it any justice. Um, so I know you tried to get it into a TED talk at fifteen minutes, um, mm-hmm. but we we had to slash bits and bits and pieces of it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, can you tell us your background, who you are, and how the 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 journey that you've kind of gone on since kind of nineteen ninety eight. Yeah, well, look, everything that, that I do when I look back um, is about helping people build resilience and collaborate with others so that they achieve more than they thought possible. Uh, that's where I am now, and I do that through speaking, and we've got a running event that happens all around the world, and, and I'm also on a mission to bring people together to cure paralysis, but that's where I am now, and if I rewind back, to 1998, um, I didn't have it as neatly packaged as that. I I was in college studying for a business studies and economics degree, about to graduate. I was rowing for the university and um, 
breaking into the senior Irish setup, and then I was going to go and start a job in investment banking in London. And I could walk, I could see, and in the space of two weeks, I lost my sight through detached retinas and was found myself in hospital, completely stripped of my identity as defined by the things that I was doing and really starting to, uh, having to start from scratch again and having to set about finding an identity, creating a new one, rebuilding the, the one that I'd, that I'd lost. And um, I suppose I, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious that that's the first half, but I better not, I better go, not go on to the second half um, of the story when I, uh, when I, when I fell out, fell out the window and broke, broke my back. I think it's all kind of linked. So I think you may go through the whole lot. <laughs> I tried. Well, you know, I I went from this person that, you know, it was all standard form. I was doing what my mates were doing. I was going to go off to London. I was going to carry on rowing, you know, always going to plan, find myself in hospital, trying to work out what I was going to do as a blind person in the world. Uh, and I got back to studying, did a master's in business studies, got a job, went back rowing and, and won silver and bronze medals in the Commonwealth Games. Now, the Commonwealth Games, if there are any rowers listening, it's it's not the World Championships or the Olympics. It's, it's a level below. Um, but it was great for me at the, at the time. And we got silver and bronze medals at those championships. And it was a real sort of... Um, uh, a real part of, of that rebuilding of my identity. I had a job. I knew I could study. I knew I could live independently. I was back rowing. Life was sort of back to normal. And then I'd almost been on autopilot doing that and then had to four years after going blind work out, well, okay, I've done all these things. I know I can do the various parts of my my life. I could, I could be involved in all of those as I was before I lost my sight, but what am I going to do now? And... And I ended up meeting a blind guy called Miles Hilton Barber, who was doing adventure racing. And then he was going into businesses and giving talks on his experiences and what he had learned from the, from the adventure racing. So I started a speaking business, small at the start, and I built up over the years. And I got into adventure racing, racing in deserts, mountains, oceans, and eventually over 43 days to the South Pole on 10 years after I'd gone blind. and just. And I thought I'd made it, um, conquered the, 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 the South Pole and came back and the speaking business was getting better and better. It was just at that point then that I was in England at a rowing event, just supporting at Henley Royal Regatta. And um, on the second night, I fell out of a second story window onto the concrete below and, and broke my back and basically had to do it all, all again working out what not not only what it was going to be like to live life as a blind person but what was life going to be like as a blind and paralyzed person could i do the adventure racing could i be involved in sport uh, could i get a job could i could i do do any of it again um that was back in 2010 and 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 so it goes on i am back doing all of these things so um the adventure racing has changed to now Acting as a guinea pig to cure paralysis. And my my brother used to row up until kind of COVID, and he used to live in Henley, so I've been at the regattas. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So he used to row, row for uh, the Upper Thames. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and then he used to row for UCD here in Dublin. So I kind of know a little bit of the kind of the rowing jargon and, and it like <laughs> it, it, it's it's like a it's like a cult. Yeah, it's it's pretty full on. I mean, I always think about uh, people who who come into the sport as as eighteen year olds. Yeah, um, my brother, yeah, right, men and women, and they come in and train. What what I think most sports would regard as a at an elite level, um, in their first year of the sport, in terms of time commitment, hours on the water in the gym, um, the camaraderie and the team kind of bonding with the the people that they train with and, and the race with. I always look at, at that cohort of people and think, what what does rowing have that allows people to come in in their first year in college and suddenly be rowers, you know, led by that identity? I, I started as a junior because I wasn't allowed to play contact sports. Um, and it got it got me as a young guy, but it, it always struck me as interesting as a 18, 19 year old. How does it grab people and get them training four or five, six days a week, sometimes twice a day? But yeah. it does. And how have you how, when you were rowing, were you in a two, four or eight or were you on a, or are you on your own? Well, I think there there's so many analogies with with rowing and yeah. advertisers use use it, uh, use the imagery. Uh, I. There are single scholars, yeah. and um, you know the two, the Donovan brothers and uh, Sanita. She's in a single skull, two two oars each, yeah. um, and then the lads, the Donovan brothers, or, or Fenton McCarthy, uh, getting the the gold in the Olympics. They were in a double skull, but really those guys are are, are single scholars. I was in a uh, I was into rowing, really one oar each, and I was always in a crew boat. Okay. So a pair, a four, or an eight, and I think I know you're um, you're interested in sort of mindset and you know, yeah people that you, you listen to. I think there's quite a difference between a single scholar and a crew person. That's what um, I was trying to get into is like the difference between going from sort of like a team event to going to your the events and stuff like which we're going to talk about like the go the Gobi Desert events and the that those kind of like races and stuff they do individually. Yeah. How was yeah. how have you adapted your one year identity, which you've mentioned a lot, and then I de- and then also changed the mindset to like not let that inner voice kind of like eat away at you, if you know what I mean. Well, I I was always a a, a crew man. I was never a, a single scholar, and as a result, I was involved in in uh, pairs, fours, and and eights in the rowing and. And moving into the um, and and just on on the road, I think you've got to be pretty disciplined. Uh, and there are people who do this, but you've got to be extremely disciplined to rely entirely on yourself uh, to get up to do the training on the cold mornings, to do that consistently over long periods of time to get any kind of results. Uh, and I think a lot of the the single scholars work very very closely. The relationship with their coach. Uh, is perhaps even more important than the crew people. I I wouldn't really have been able to do that, or certainly I wouldn't have enjoyed the single sculling. So very often I turned up for training, so I wouldn't let the other uh, eight people in the boat and the cox and the coach, so I wouldn't let them down. So I was sort of using my teammates and the people around the boat as a um, as a motivator 
if, if, if I would let myself down, I wouldn't let them down. So that's has sort of carried on into the adventure racing, which in a way is, you know, if you go and do six marathons in a week in the Gobi Desert, these sort of long distance ultra events or uh, you know, any of the any of the sort of ultra marathons, you tend to do them on your own. Now, I probably wouldn't have done that if I could see, but I was always going with a teammate because being a blind person, I wouldn't be able yeah. to do six marathons in a week without hanging on to someone's elbow or racing to the South Pole or the Everest Marathon or the North Pole Marathon, any of these events. I was thankfully always training with a guide, um, but I, I didn't really think of them as a guide. I thought of them as a as a teammate, and, and that, that worked for me in a way that, I don't think it would have if I was just a uh, a lone runner. And when you're looking for that teammate, when you're about to set off on those adventures that you do, what's the one quality that you're kind of looking for in that teammate? Uh, character and dependability. Someone who will uh, do what they say they're going to do. Turn up when they said they were going to turn up consistently over long periods of time and I've said that consistently over long periods of time uh, I always think of compounding as a related to money and finance and yeah. interest rates but making small decisions again and again and again compounding over time is what gets results uh, you have to do that as a, an individual but come back to your question what do I look for in, in, in a teammate well it's it's someone who who does that makes small decisions to turn up every time um, to put the work in. I mean, in a way, when you turn up, that's almost the decision made. Yeah. When you're there, you tend to put the work in. So I, so I think that that's a critical element and I, and I need teammates who are dependable, reliable, uh, rather than flaky and unreliable. Um, mm. And ho- hopefully I, perform in the same way and you t- you spoke about it at the beginning about kind of having to like rebuild your identity when when you lost your sight and then rebuild the identity again what what was the what was the process for that there obviously was an element of kind of like um like an element of like grief or an element of that side of things in it but how long and what, what were the processes and steps that you took to kind of start to rebuild that for yourself yeah, well, I, you know, it, it, I'm looking back now over the years, and I'm I'm always trying to work out: did I think this at the time, or is this now a retrospective yeah. justification for for what was going on? But I think certainly after blindness, the things that I would I was doing were, were very were very clear. I was I was rowing and involved in sport, so I was, I was rowing. I was going to go and get a job, and I was just about to set set my finals. And of course, the fourth bit was I was maybe the first bit, the socializing, these four parts of my identity. And for the first four years, I really was just trying to get it, well, trying to get back out in the world and socializing, trying to get a job, going back studying, going back rowing. So I was almost on autopilot. I felt like I was I'd taken a knock or gone blind and I felt like I was being left behind. So I was, I was really just replicating or rebuilding the identity that I'd lost when I lost my sight. And then at that point, when I handed in my master's thesis, I got the silver and bronze medals in the Commonwealth Games. I had 
you know, had a been back in the pub and been back dating again again. Um, but I missed, I probably missed the work, the work there. All these things came together, and then I had to, I had to, to think. Okay, well, what, what do I want to do now? Because, because the options were all on the table. It was almost like a blank page. I could have gone to London to work in an investment bank, and I had to sit back. I didn't have to. I think with blankness, it makes you and creates the space and time to to sit back and think harder, perhaps about what what you want to do and what you're good at. And for me, I wanted to be involved in sport. The adventure racing seemed to be a route that I could, that I'd, I'd, it, was the, it was the thing I was most interested in really in school. And having the opportunity to go adventure racing, I had been pretty good at raising sponsorship over the years uh, and being with a team. So training, doing events, uh, taking on challenges, and then being able to convert that and turn those experiences into a business through the speaking, uh, this this seemed particularly attractive to me. And then that was able to carry on after I broke my back, after you know eighteen months in hospital. Didn't know if I was going to be able to do the speaking side of things. I mean, what would what people want to hear? Life was good. Then I went blind. It was good again when I was doing my adventure racing, and now I've broken my back, and it's all terrible again. You know, I, I wasn't sure that was going to be a compelling yeah. story or share any insights. But I, I thought in the aftermath of blindness that really I was going to have to be a spectator sitting on the sidelines. And those first 10 years were really all about rebuilding my identity as a competitor, pursuing success and risking failure. Uh, more importantly, defining myself by more willingness to try. So that's what I think competitors do. They define themselves by their willingness to try, which allows them to risk failure as they pursue success. So that's how I made sense of it. And in fact, that same principle holds now after I broke my back, blank page again, working out what I was going to do. Well, I, my primary expedition that I'm on now is to explore the intersection where humans and technology collide to cure paralysis in our lifetime. And that means using and experimenting with robotic legs, electrical stimulation of the spine, brain-machine interfaces, working with scientists and technologists and investors and philanthropists. But the same principle holds. I can only do that. Bear in mind, there, there has been no cure for paralysis up to this point in history. So I can only do that if I value my effort, my willingness to try, knowing that it may fail, and that releases me to to um, pursue the success of achieving that goal. You mentioned the willingness to try. Um, I think that's a, a massive statement there, because I think I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it in relation to, do you think that a lot of people struggle with that willingness to try or that they let fear almost take them over and without actually making the effort in order to try and do something out of so the so-called comfort zone without using a buzzword, if you know what I mean. Do you think people just get like kind of struck down with the fear and they don't actually have that willingness to try it? Or do you, do you believe you're kind of, it's, it's built in with you or is it kind of like you need something to happen for you to actually try and grow that? Or what, what, what kind of element do you think that is? Um, I think, 
like I think I think when when I when I think of my uh, my niece and nephews, where they're all able to play and they're not embarrassed and they're they're able to try things. Uh, you know, it it I think it's within within us all, and then at some point, somehow, we get overcome with embarrassment or perhaps our job or our medals or our degrees or certificates or our lack of any of those things, maybe those things and our identity becomes too complicated or the risk is too high of losing any of these things. Now, I happen to have lost all of these things or or at least the status quo has changed twice and I suppose when you when you strip it all away and you and you you pull things back, maybe maybe it's just about doing what children do when they're not embarrassed, whenever they haven't created an identity, when they're not worried about about what people think. And you know you go from from that sort of intuitive understanding of how human beings work. I think we all know that we've all felt that as children. You think, well, how does how does that happen? How do you get there when you're an adult, when you've got too much to lose? And in recent times, I've been looking at what what do competitors do? I've been looking at all sorts of things like having great clarity about commitment and grit, about connection with other people. But at, at the heart of it, I'm interested in um, flow states non-ordinary states of consciousness, which you can get into with meditation. You can get into it. Uh, there's a lot of research around psychedelics and microdosing mm-hmm. of psychedelics, which, you know, I'm, I'm not, I've never been successful on the meditation side of things and I've never been into psychedelics. But what I am interested in these flow states and in a flow state, which you might call the zone uh, in in sporting terms, or being in the groove, or in the pocket, if you're a if you're a jazz musician, um, you get into a state not where you're using more of your brain, but in fact you get into a state where your brain slightly starts to shut down and concentrates on the task in hand. Time stands still or speeds up; it, it dilates. Uh, things seem effortless. We're able to do things through pattern recognition, almost unconsciously that we didn't know that we could do. And more importantly, coming back to your question, the parts of our brain that make us self-conscious start to shut down when we're in flow. So you lose your sense of self-consciousness. And I've been, I've been interested and I'm currently working on a project to see how can we create the circumstances uh, to get into flow, not just in sport, but but also at work, at play, uh, in comp- in competition and in, in training, particularly for that reason. How do we become less conscious, less self-aware? Um, you know, we're always trying to become more self-aware and more yeah. conscious, but in fact, there's something in our willingness to try that's in, that 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 only really happens when we become less self-conscious now. And I think flow states, um, just when we're performing at our best and being, feeling our best, uh, that's what it's defined as. How do we create the circumstances to get there? I'm interested in that at the moment. 
And in relation to the challenges that you pick and you go for, like they're not small by any means. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't seem to do things by halves. Yeah. Uh, where do you pick them and how do you actually kind of say, right, this is what I need right now? Or do you kind of say this is like the biggest thing I can go for and go for it? Or do you start small and then build up towards it? Or how do you kind of pick your challenges? Because like some of them are mind boggling. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say there, you know, I go for small challenges and build them up. But, you know, I I know some of my, t- my some of my teammates, you don't, over the years that I've had, you don't know what they're going to be entering next pretty much until they're on the start line. Whereas I would, you know, I'd start publicizing it a year before because we can't hold it in. I'm starting to talk about the, you know, the Gobi Desert, six marathons in a week in the Gobi Desert, which was my first, first adventure. I was going on about that for about, about nine months before, before we did it, raising sponsorship, um, raising money for charity, uh, getting the kit, talking to people about what what I should be wearing. So I I tend to talk about it a good bit earlier than lots and lots of my my team teammates. Um but in terms of going back to this idea of flow, one of the uh, one of the pieces of research, one of the triggers that gets you into flow is called the challenge skills ratio. And the research suggests that if the challenge is too great for the skills that you've got, you become overwhelmed. And when you're overwhelmed, you just you just can't do anything. No. But if the challenge isn't great enough compared to the skills that you've got, you become bored and apathetic and you never do anything when that's the case. So if it's, if it's too easy, that's not desirable. If it's too hard, that's not desirable. So the research suggests it's got to be Four percent more difficult than your skills. The challenge has to be four four percent more difficult than the skills you've got now. That's I, it's quite precise. Like it's it, to have yes. it, that four percent is very very precise. It's kind of like that, well, if I went to try and start run a marathon right now, it'd be kind of like I'd probably classify that above four percent. Yes, or like if I was to do a ten k or a fifteen k, it'd probably be adequate enough, but it wouldn't put, it wouldn't push me enough. And I think that's the point. You know, four percent comes in the lab in the lab settings. And the interesting thing about well, how do you find the four percent is probably what uh, it is, your approach to everything, uh, Shane, is that you have to be able to experiment. Yeah. So to find where you are, you have to have a growth mindset. You have to be open to learning. If you get it wrong, you shouldn't beat yourself up and think that you're a failure. In fact, you have to work. You have to think, well, okay, that's interesting. That I've learned something from that, and I'll do it differently next time. So. In order to get the challenge skills ratio right, you have to have a growth mindset, which is a learning mindset, as opposed to a fixed mindset, which is a, um, a chastising mindset. You know, you tell yourself off for getting it wrong. So, like, if I go from lying in the hospital bed after breaking my back, the first step there was to get sitting up. Then it was to get into the wheelchair. Uh, I then it was to be out in the world. Uh, then it was to go and walk in robotic legs. Then it was to do a three-month study in those robotic legs, layering on electrical stimulation of the spinal cord. Then it was 
uh, now to add in brain-machine interfaces and so on and so on. So the transition from lying in the hospital bed to standing and doing a research study in UCLA or the contrast from lying in a hospital bed to going to the South Pole, neither of those things happened overnight. They happened by very small decisions, building up my confidence, compounding, going back to this idea of compounding over time again and again and again. But I did, so I'm conscious of the small decisions again and again over time, the people that we have around us to help us there. And of course, the clarity that comes whenever you say, I'm going to enter a 43-day expedition race in the South Pole, or I'm going to enter a 10K race, or I'm going to turn up at a and meet someone and go for a 5K run, or I'm going to meet someone in the gym to learn how to do a shoulder press. Yeah. You know, just just these small but very clear things that we're we're going to go for help. I think in uh, the help to inform the small decisions along the way to get there. You mentioned there about failure, and one of the big thing is like people fear like failure, and failure to everyone will be very very different. But how do we separate? failing from being a failure because i think that's a huge label that people can attach themselves very easily mm. so how do we actually separate the kind of whole thing of failing from actually being a failure um yeah like i suppose i you know go, sort of looping back a little bit to the yeah. to the identity but the so if you I think people talk about Olympians. I'm always hearing, and, and professional sports people are always talking about process goals and out, outcome goals. If you attach yourself to the gold medal or the finish line or the the thing that you're trying to achieve, it, it is separate to you. It it is not you. And it makes you feel good if you cross the finish line at the South Pole, or in my case, if I make um, you know some progress. With the with the curing paralysis, ultimately, if we cure paralysis in our lifetime, you know, that that's the finish line for uh, for me. But I suppose I'm I'm always trying to separate the outcome or the thing from from me, the person. You know, I think I think we in this whole part of the discussion, I think I think we might kind of value ourselves too highly. Yeah, you know, like I bang on about the South Pole all the time, and I bang on about robotic legs all the time. But I am not the South Pole, and I'm not robotic legs, and I I am not paralysis. Although I'm I'm paralyzed, all of these things are kind of external to me. And another, apart from the whole flow states, another area that I've become increasingly interested in is Stoic philosophy. Now it turns out that all of the books that I've read over the years have found out that uh, Admiral Stockdale, who I was interested in in a, in, in a chapter of a book, a business book by Jim Collins called Good to Great, Admiral Stockdale was a Stoic. The Stoics, the original Stoics, were around 2,500 years ago in uh, Greece and Rome. Um, Victor Frankl, although he wasn't a Stoic, in the Second World War, certainly there are overlaps with this kind of idea of Stoic philosophy. And Stoic philosophy was was a way, wasn't a 
sort of academic pursuit of philosophy. It was a it was a way of living to differentiate between what we can control and what we cannot, what we can influence and what we cannot. So I'm constantly, uh, naturally, or due to my rowing or due to one of my teachers who was a classic scholar, or maybe due to my dad, for a long time, I've trying to I've been trying to separate the externals that I cannot control with my choices, which I am in control of. And and that probably is a different uh, a different lens that uh, around the our willingness to try pursuing success and risking failure. Some things are me and some things are external to me. And it's just trying to work out where the line is. You, you, when you mentioned the whole thing about the valuing ourselves like a little bit higher than we probably are, there's an amazing book called Selfie. And in that, right. they say that people think they're better looking than they are. <laughs> so when people are going out on dates or they get like rejected or turned away, they get, they get, they get a, lo- a lot more upset. It's like, well, why is this happening to me? It's because we think we're, our identity is latched up, up a little bit higher than it actually is at the minute. Yeah, so it's yeah. interesting that. But you mentioned, I can see Viktor Frankl. My, it's literally my favorite book. Uh, it's, over your, it's over your shoulder. Yeah. And uh, he, has, like, he has 30 books, I think it is. But the, the, the yeah. three main ones are Yes to Life and Man Search and Meaning. So anyone, please just go and read them. Uh, but one of the things in Yes to Life is that for in order for happiness to be there we need to go through suffering and i Mm. think are you a true are you a big believer in that in yourself that you've kind of had that these massive shifts in your life but it's brought you to the place you are now to be more content and be more aware and more present with what you've got Uh, this is a yes and answer Uh, (laughs) uh, yes and i would much prefer not to yeah. have gone blind and broken my back, I, you know we don't need we don't need to go through what Victor, Victor Frankel went yeah. through or or true you know, true hardship to create the opportunities to push ourselves to make ourselves a little bit uncomfortable that that challenge skills ratio, and I think I think you know doing something that's a little bit a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, is important because it builds us up and builds us up and we we learn over time that we can do a little bit more a little bit more a little bit more um and that we're more capable of of uh, more capable than what we think we are so uh you know in a way whenever i talk about sort of ultra endurance events or curing paralysis it's a little bit abstract but it 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 now is those things are became over long periods of time quite comfortable for me. Um, but I remember whenever I, I went to walk in the robotic legs, which is like a wearable exoskeleton with motors at the knees and the hips. Two years after I'd, I'd arrived at the South Pole, and I hadn't got up out of my chair, so just just standing up in this robot was good enough, even if I wasn't able to take a step, just rising up out of my chair. Um, and my dad was with me in San Francisco at a company called Exobionics whenever that happened. And just rising up out of the chair and being able to give give my dad a hug was a massive big deal. You know, so we have ups and downs, 
all the time throughout our our lives. We don't have to do the the, the big grand gesture, just taking one step. Where um, my case just standing up was was really 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 important. But it's just a little bit more, a little bit more than we're comfortable with. I think that's an important principle. It's uh, like that's that's blown my mind to how how something a lot of what we take what we would take for granted um who would be who would have use of legs and arms and all that kind of stuff that we would take for granted is something so meaningful to yourself and i remember watching jack Kavanagh, who's been on the podcast as well and he has he got the he went on the the robotic legs as well in, in the movie um and seeing his face doing that and doing the he was doing the rolling or the the jiu jitsu as well. He was like, I don't want these people to to, to half arse me either. I want to actually fight these people. Um, and it's just, it's it's it, it, it's I don't think we'll ever fully truly understand it. Um, but it it's that's blown my mind. I'm not going to lie. Um, another Victor Frankel element is that one of the big quotes that sticks out in my head is he who he or she who has a why will bear with almost anyhow. How important is it for? you and I think for individuals to have a why when we go out and do something because I think the biggest why for you right now is the amazing research and the efforts and the financial research and financial meanings that you're putting into finding a cure for paralysis mm-hmm. how important is that for you um hugely important I I've got a, a, I'll try not to give you a you know 20 minute answer on this but, <laughs> but uh part of Part of my research into what what do competitors do, and remember, I don't I don't mean win loss. I must win and you must lose, or yeah. you must win and I must lose. To be a competitor, to be a competitor is defining ourselves by our willingness to strive, pursuing success in the knowledge that we may we may fail. So, part of my research into well, what do competitors do? What do they actually do? And what does the research suggest that they do? And one of the things is that they have great clarity. Um, and I have relied on that quote, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. Um, and Nietzsche, uh, that was Friedrich Nietzsche, yeah. and, and Viktor Frankl quotes that in his book a lot. And <clears throat> I suppose this, this why is, is something that after I broke my back, it was very clear I wanted to be an adventure athlete, doing my speaking things, being a competitor, that was the sort of the post blindness story. When I broke my back, then I was I was acting as a guinea pig and bringing various technologists and scientists together to cure paralysis. The marketing people were saying, "Well, that's your why, um, and you know that's what you should be putting on social media and you know to help to raise the money and all that stuff." And I felt, well, okay, if I now because I've broken my back and because I'm interested in finding a cure, if that if that's exclusively what I'm about, well, then I must therefore have to reject all of the sport that has gone before, which is also part of me. So in a way, although it was ambitious to cure paralysis in our lifetime, it it actually felt as a why it felt too narrow. So I, back in 2019, after we did the TED Talk, um, I, was, I was able to get to uh, meet Simon Sinek, who's oh, wow. written the book, Start With Why yeah. and Find Your Why and all that. To, to have a discussion about this very topic. And he said to me over lunch in, in New York, uh, when I put this to him, that curing paralysis feels too narrow. He said, well, 
Yeah, of course it is. Because if you cured paralysis in the morning, you would do something else. And your why is probably formed. The things that you're really into, they're formed whenever you're sort of 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, that sort of period of your life. And after talking to him and going back and forward with him, I created my why statement, which is what I opened with at the, at the start. Everything I do is about helping people to build resilience and collaborate with others so they achieve more than they thought possible. So that is my why. Uh, it's got resilience, collaboration, and performance in there. The South Pole fits under there. The Cure and Paralysis fits under there. Our Run in the Dark event that isn't just a 5K and 5 and 10K in Ireland, but it happens all around the world, it fits in there. So everything that I'm doing sits under that uh, guiding why. And then I start to produce in the business. We have four-year, what we call Olympic cycles. Not that I was at the Olympics, but it feels short enough to be meaningful, but long enough to be able to tackle, um, uh, to, you know, to make some progress. I come down to annual key result areas, which are about five or th six things that I'd be happy if I looked back at the end of the year. Would I be happy if I achieved those? And um, so we try to have those key result areas. I come down to monthly care goals, weekly priorities and daily actions. And I design my calendar in a way that allows me to have creative time, training time, recovery time, and then messy calls and, and so on time. But the reason I go into this in such detail, this sort of clarity stack, going from the very broad why to the four-year, to the annual, to the monthly, to the weekly, to the daily, is because in my research around performance and particularly into flow states, uh, without clarity, the prefrontal cortex, the bit that makes us human and allows us to be have self-awareness and logical reasoning and all that, all that useful stuff that makes us human, if we don't have great clarity, that becomes overactive and we become self-conscious, the point about being embarrassed, the point about worrying about risking failure, all that stuff comes into play when we don't have clarity, when there's too much noise going on. The brain gets focused on what we should be doing rather than getting on with doing it analysis mode as opposed to doing mode. So um, to be a competitor really does require this, this clarity stack from the broad why statement right down to the, the daily and weekly um, actions and, and priorities. So I'm, now it sounds very prescriptive. And in fact, it takes so much time that we've had to, we've had to put clarity in, as, in, in our, in our uh, business in as one of the work streams. Clarity, gaining that clarity and working at it on a daily and weekly basis is actually part of the work. It's not an optional optional extra. And that's from a sort of a general theory idea right through to the neuroscience. You mentioned about the daily actionable targets and leading towards the monthly, the, or sorry, the weekly, the monthly, the quarterly, the yearly. If you say have done everything possible in order to get to say the overall yearly to get yourself to the overall four-year cycle that you talk about which is the olympic cycle generally for athletes and you miss out what you set out to do in one element of it how do you i'm not sure if you've had to uh deal with it yet uh yeah. 
But how, oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> how have you dealt with that yourself? And like, how have you, how have you had to reassess and reevaluate things for the next cycle? If you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And no, absolutely. I'm, I've been, I've been doing this sort of clarity stack uh, thing for um, about six or seven years now. Yeah. And if I look back year, year one, we didn't have the monthly, the monthly clear goals. We didn't have the weekly priorities. We didn't have the daily actions. That's come much later. It was really sort of the four-year cycle and the annual key result areas. And of course, what what happens is uh, the, sort of the four-year Olympic cycle feels, and, I, and we do, you know, that's for athletes, but I actually do this in my business. In fact, to do it for all my projects, this sort of four-year cycle the key result there is that these five things in the in the annual uh, what I'd be happy with at the end of the year. In year one, I had the five points, and then I had about six sub points under each of them. Right, failing, failing on about at least fifty percent of what I what I had written down at the start of the year. So you know, doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't yeah. make me a failure, but. What it does highlight is, if I have a learning mindset, that in year two, I have to look at it and say, I need to do much more work on what is realistic. I need much more clarity about what I can do and what is reasonable in the number of hours that are in a day and in the number of uh, days that are in a week. And indeed, over time, with the amount of recovery and rest that I now have increasingly valued as a high performance non-negotiable so over those sort of six seven years uh, i have been increasingly focused on the uh, the work to gain clarity and also the to stop doing list you know getting rid of all that legacy stuff that we thought was a good idea at one point but actually when it, when you look at it over over a couple of years you were never going to do that in the first place you know you just get rid of it let it go and really release yourself because you were never going to do it in the first place. Like a PhD that I started about 20 years ago and my supervisor uh, said she knew I was never going to do a PhD, but it needed some time to work it out. It's <laughs> <laughs> a nice way of putting it. It's a very nice way of putting it. Um, Mark, I cannot thank you enough for like, there's so much in there. I, I, the 4% thing has blown my mind. And then the element of when you were able to stand up and give your, your, your dad a hug is just, you just blow my mind um but i cannot thank you enough for giving up so much of your time and sharing your story and where can people find out about yourself where can people book you for say talks and kind of coming into the corporates and where can find people find out about the ted talk um if you go to markpollock.com and that's p-o-l-l-o-c-k so markpollock.com that's where all the all the contact details and everything i'm doing on the on the speaking side and all the adventures are so markpollock.com, but we also have in November Run in the Dark and runinthedark.org is a 5 or 10K. It happens in 50 cities all around the world and we'll be back at the in-person events uh, this November. So runinthedark.org or markpollock.com. Amazing. I'll put the links into the uh, the show notes so that people can sign up and and go from there. But Mark, thank you so much for, for coming on and for sharing your story. Thanks for having me.